Jesus Christ can secure our justification because God appointed him as our representative just as he did Adam in the garden. And folks, that is the only way God can accept the work of Christ in your place without violating his justice. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new eight-part series titled The True and Better Adam. Think about it. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a crucial question that all people must have answered for them. And the question is this, how can one person Christ Jesus the Lord, by His obedience and death, stand in the place of others? On the other hand, how can one person take upon himself the full curse and penalty of sin for everyone who would believe on Him? Well, as you'll discover today and throughout this series, the key to these questions lies within Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And it is through these key texts that Tom will explore how Jesus Christ is the true and better Adam. Well, Tom, this series has much to do with understanding the substitutionary death of Jesus as much as the origins of sin, doesn't it? It's true, Bill. You know, this series really goes to the heart of the Christian gospel because at its heart, we can only be saved because someone else could stand in our place. Someone else could substitute on our behalf. If there is no substitution, then there is no gospel, there is no salvation. But the question is, how could someone else substitute for us? How could God in his justice allow Christ to stand in our place? That's a huge issue and a huge important question. The good news is Paul answers it powerfully in a way that's such a help, such an encouragement to us in this often misunderstood and often neglected passage. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. At the Shepherds Conference, I learned about comments made recently by a Christian musician, statements made on Twitter that attack the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins to satisfy the justice of God and to bring us into right relationship with Him. I had to read them for myself, and I did, and here's what this Christian musician who has, I think, won a Grammy or two for his Christian music, he and his wife, he began by rebuking those who sing about such things. This is what he wrote, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering his son. Obviously, he received a great deal of uh, criticism for, the, for that comment, and so he went online then defending himself, and in defending himself, he wrote this, if you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, stop singing and look around. Now, when I read those, and of course he went on after taking a great deal of heat and actually having his musical career threatened, that he went on to sort of back down from some of those comments a little bit. But as I read those original comments, 
I was struck by the fact that we who have come to know Jesus Christ through his substitutionary death, we find those comments repulsive and reprehensible. But I think we at the same time need to admit that there is at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the Christian faith, a crucial question that sort of lies beneath the surface in his comments. And the question is this, and it is a legitimate question. How can one person, by his obedience and death, stand in the place of others? And we just kind of take that for granted. But let's admit that that very reality seems to contradict what God himself has revealed. Think of passages like Ezekiel 18, where God says, I will deal with the person based on his or her own actions. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18.19, the one who has practiced righteousness shall live. In other words, in those passages, and frankly in many others throughout the Scripture, God makes it clear that He treats each person according to strict justice, that is, in keeping with his or her own actions. So how then can a just God treat us as if we had lived Christ's life and treat us as if we had died for our sins when Christ died for our sins? This is a, an absolutely fundamental question to the Christian faith. How can God do that when it seems to fly in the face of what God has revealed about himself? Well, Paul has not yet addressed this key question in Romans, but he answers it definitively and profoundly in the paragraph that we come to in our study of Romans this morning. Now, let me warn you, this is by far the most difficult paragraph in the entire letter. Paul's logic is incredibly condensed. It is profoundly theological. It will require serious mental sweat for us to draw out Paul's meaning. But I want you to know that it is absolutely crucial that we understand what Paul says in this paragraph because there is no truth more foundational to our redemption in fact, it is not an overstatement to say that the entire gospel of Jesus Christ rests on, depends on, the truth that is uncovered in this passage. Already in the book of Romans, Paul has explained to us the reality that Jesus' life and death, that it's credited to us and we receive the benefits of his actions. But here, for the first time in this letter... Paul explains not that the work of Jesus is credited to us, but how the work of Jesus can be credited to us. How can God accept the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in our place? So let's read together this paragraph that really stands at the epicenter, at the very heart of the gospel that is preached in the Christian faith. Romans chapter 5, you follow along as I read beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. 
For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now before we begin to work our way through this paragraph verse by verse, I think it's important that we step back to do two things. First of all, we need to make sure that we identify Paul's main point in this paragraph. And secondly, we need to understand the flow of his argument, the structure that he uses. And I think if, if we get those two things, then this paragraph will begin to, to become clearer to us. So let's start then. Let me give you the theme, and I'm going to give it to you. I think you saw this as we read it, but I'm going to articulate it, and then we'll obviously see this unfold as we work our way through the passage. But here's Paul's theme. I'll give it to you twice, so if you're taking notes, you can get it down. Jesus Christ can secure our justification because God appointed him as our representative, just as he did Adam in the garden. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ can secure our justification because God appointed him as our representative, just as he did Adam in the garden. And folks, that is the only way God can accept the work of Christ in your place without violating his justice. In his wisdom, God appointed two men, and only two men, Adam and Christ, as the official representatives of those connected to them. In the garden, God appointed Adam to represent all of Adam's descendants. And who are they? All humanity, all of us, every human being. And God then credited to every human being the consequences of their representative, Adam's, decisions. In his earthly ministry and in his death and life, God also appointed Jesus Christ as the representative of all of his descendants. And who are they? They're the ones who would ever believe in him. All who would ever believe in him. Those are his descendants. And God then credits to them all the benefits of their representative, Jesus Christ's actions. See, this uncovers a crucial spiritual point. God can only credit the guilt or righteousness of one person to another and preserve his justice when the one serves as the legal representative of the other. The principle of spiritual representation is foundational to God's plan of redemption. 
And that's the amazing truth that is explained here in Romans 5, verse 12 and following. Now, theologians have some labels for what we'll learn in this passage. Let me give you the labels. And they call this truth federal headship or representative headship, or some even call it vicarious representation. Don't be frightened by those expressions. Essentially, they all mean this. God legally appointed someone to serve as our representative. And we receive either the guilt and consequences or the benefits and blessings of our representative's actions. Now, as I say that, you may be sitting there saying to yourself, boy, that is completely unlike anything I've experienced. That's foreign to our our modern world. And you would be entirely wrong. In fact, Our world is built, in many cases, on the same basic principle of representational headship. Let me give you a couple of examples. Our government, for example, is based on representative leadership. We elect men and women as our representatives. And once we we elect them, they may take a look at the surveys, but largely they don't consult with us on every decision and action that they make. Because they are our representatives, however, we either suffer the consequences of their bad decisions or we reap the rewards of their good decisions. But the difference, there's a key difference between those elected officials and Adam and Christ, and that is we elect our governmental representatives. God chose our spiritual representatives. Now, there's another example Think of even in the financial world, this principle of legal representation is very common in the financial world. Many of us have decided in the interest of being good stewards of what God has given us to invest our money, and and we invested in things like mutual funds. We, instead of buying little parts of companies on our own, we go and we buy a mutual fund. Rather than doing our own research and selecting individual companies to invest in, we essentially have selected money managers as our representatives. And every day as we go about our lives, they make decisions about how to invest our money. And we make money if they make good investments with that money, or we lose money if they make bad investments and poor investment decisions. Again, The key difference is that we select our financial representatives, but God selects our spiritual representatives. So, there is the theme of this passage. Jesus Christ is able to secure our justification because God has appointed him as our representative just as God appointed Adam as our representative in the garden. One other thing we need to do before we look at the verses here, and that is, We need to make sure we understand the flow of Paul's argument. And let me just admit to you that this is a very difficult paragraph to follow Paul's chain of argument. You probably sensed that as I read it. Why is that? Because Paul interrupts himself. I never do that. You never do that. But Paul, no, of course we do that. Paul does that here. Remember, Paul, for the most part, dictated his letters. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he would dictate to an amanuensis, they would write down, and as Paul says something in verse 12, he realizes that that could create an issue, and so he interrupts himself to explain it. And that's the reason this passage is is hard to follow. You'll notice in verse 12, 
He begins with a conditional statement, but he doesn't include his conclusion. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed to all men because all sinned, and then there's no completion. Usually when Paul begins a sentence with the Greek word that is here translated as, or sometimes just as, he completes the sentence with the Greek words even so. As, even so. Just as, even so. This is what Paul does. It's, it's true in verse 15 in the Greek text. You can't really see it in the English. But you can see it in the English in verse 18. Notice what he says. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19. As, even so... Verse 21, as even so. So when you go back to verse 12, it becomes very clear that Paul didn't complete his thought after beginning his thought. That's why, by the way, if you look at the NAS, the translators at the end of verse 12 put a dash. That dash tells you he didn't finish this thought. Other versions do different things to indicate the same thing. Paul has interrupted himself. So verses 13 to 17 are really a parenthesis in Paul's thought. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would he interrupt himself? Well, look at the end of verse 12. At the end of verse 12, Paul made a highly controversial statement, and that is, in Adam, we all sinned. If you're a thinking person, you immediately go, hand up, wait a minute, what do you mean, we all sinned in Adam? Paul realizes, as soon as he he dictates this to the amanuensis, that he needs to clarify it and defend it. So in verses 13 and 14, he launches into a, a parenthetical statement to make it clear that when he said all sin, he means we all sin in Adam, and that is biblically defensible. But Paul interrupts himself a second time. Having made that clarification, he interrupts himself with a second parenthesis. And and this is necessary because of what he says at the end of verse 14. Notice what he says at the end of verse 14. Adam is a type of him who was to come. And again, as soon as Paul dictates that, he realizes that this can be misunderstood. He doesn't want people to think that Adam and Christ are somehow completely equal. And so while it is true that Adam is a type of Christ, and there are points of similarity he's going to bring out here, Paul also wanted to make it clear that what Christ has done as our representative far surpasses anything Adam has done. And that's why in verses 15 to 17, several times as he contrasts Adam and Christ, he says, much more much more, much more. He wants us to understand that while Adam is a type of Christ, Christ is far superior. So then, just to review, Paul begins to make his point in verse 12, but immediately interrupts himself in verses 13 to 17. And it's only when we come to verse 18 that Paul comes back to what he began to say in verse 12. He rephrases and summarizes the just as statement, that he started in verse 12, and then he completes it in verse 18 with the even so side of the statement. Look at verse 18. So then, having dealt with the two issues in verses 13 17, as, there's our as again, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. That is his paraphrase of the statement he made back up in verse 12. And here it is. 
even so, finally he's going to complete it, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Then in verse 19, Paul summarizes his whole argument. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. In verses 20 and 21, there's kind of another aside. Paul deals with a related question that Jewish Christians would have asked. Okay, Paul, you've talked about Adam and you've talked about Christ, but there's a lot between Adam and Christ. What about the law? How does the Mosaic law function in this grand scheme of redemption? And so he deals with that question in verses 20 and 21. So here's the flow of Paul's argument to sort of recap it. And by the way, this isn't my outline. I just want you to see the flow of Paul's thought. In verse 12, you have the main argument started. In verses 13 to 17, you have two parenthetical issues addressed. In verses 13 and 14, what does all send mean? And in verses 15 to 17, how is Christ superior to, different from Adam, the type? And then in verses 18 and 19, you have the main argument completed. And then in verses 20 and 21, he briefly addresses the function of the law. So that's the flow of his thought through this paragraph. Now, again, before we look at the, the verses themselves, let me put it back in the larger context of Romans. After his introduction, the first major section of the Roman letter is the gospel explained. Justification by faith alone. He begins in the middle of chapter 1 and runs through the end of chapter 4. We are now in the second major section of the letter, and that is the gospel experienced. He wants to give us the security that comes with our justification. This is chapters 5 through 8. Now, so far in this section, we have looked at the immediate benefits of justification in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And there are incredible benefits that come immediately to the one who's been justified. We've looked at that in detail. Today, the paragraph that we come to, we could call the legal basis for justification. In other words, here's how God can make Christ everything to you. Here's how God can credit your sin to Christ and Christ's sin to you. You see, Christian The reason behind our redemption, the ultimate foundation of our redemption, I shouldn't say the reason, the ultimate foundation for our redemption is the fact that God has appointed Christ as your representative. That is the only way you can receive the benefit of His acting in your place. It's the only way He can credit the righteousness of Christ to us and our sin to Christ. But is there any evidence that God has done this kind of thing before? And Paul says, oh yes, there is. Because this is exactly the position in which God placed Adam. So this is where Paul begins. Paul first reminds us of Adam, our representative. How sin, condemnation, and death came to all men. This is verses 12 to 14. Adam, our representative, how sin, condemnation, and death came to all men. Let's look now at the passage together. In verses 12 to 14, this is what we learn. Verse 12 begins, therefore. Now that word shows us how this paragraph connects to its immediate context. Therefore is literally because of this. Because of what? Well, because of our connection to or our union with Jesus Christ. 
I want you to notice how often our connection to Christ is mentioned in the previous paragraph. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand through Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says that Christ died for us, the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved literally in His life by our connection to the life of Christ. And not only this, verse 11, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through Christ we have received the reconciliation. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The True and Better Adam. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.